Hey, it's Guy here. So on today's show, we're diving even deeper into the universe, its mysteries and its vastness, to revisit what we thought we knew about space. This episode first aired in February of 2018, but this time around, we've gone back to one of our speakers to get an update on the biggest astronomy story of the year. Because since we last spoke, scientists made history by capturing the very first image of a black hole, confirming what Einstein predicted over 100 years ago. This episode is called, What Else? Peering Deeper Into Space. Enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So you ready to hear it? Yeah, sure. Five years ago, when my oldest son was three, he made a brief appearance on this show looking at the stars through our telescope. It was an episode we called Peering Into Space. And recently, I played it back for him. Oh, now I want to see... Oh, I see a red belt. Where? Where? There's a, Where's the Ryan's belt? There's one star there. Oh, yeah. And another... One, two, three. On that episode, we explored what it is about space that ignites our curiosity. What's your favorite star? Um, Polaris and Sirius are my favorite stars. Maybe Sirius is Polaris's neighbor. Whatever happened to that telescope, by the way? I think I got, I think the legs broke. You mean the tripod? Yeah. I think it got smashed in the closet. Well, Mommy threw it away, I think. I saw her secretly throwing it away. That last voice was my younger son, by the way. And as you can tell, our family stargazing has waned a little bit over the past five years. But in that same time, there's been an explosion of new information about our solar system, our galaxy, in our universe. Do you still think space is cool? Yeah. What's cool about space to you? Aliens. I hope they exist. Yeah. Would you ever want to meet an alien? Yes. We would trade baseball cards. We'd have a lemonade stand. We would be best friends. Wow. That's pretty cool. So on the show today, we're going to pick up where we left off exploring the vastness of space, finding new areas of discovery, and revisiting what we thought we knew about the universe. The last few years have completely changed what's possible and viewed as possible in our understanding of the universe on large scales. Absolutely. This is Alan Adams. He's a theoretical physicist. And I spent the past 20 years studying uh, gravitational physics and quantum mechanics, and I teach at MIT. And Alan's really interested in gravitational waves, a phenomenon that was entirely theoretical until just a few years ago. So Einstein developed the theory of relativity, which is our modern theory of gravity and how it works. And built into the equations of relativity are exactly the gravitational waves that we're talking about. A gravitational wave is basically a ripple in space caused by a massive disturbance. And they're a really big deal because they allow us to see back in time and even unlock some of the mysteries of the origins of our universe. So, for example, one huge collision that was detected in 2017, it was a collision that happened 130 million years ago, far outside of our galaxy. Out there in the darkness, there are these two really wonderfully strange objects. Each of them is a failed star, huh. a star that has lived its life and blown off its outer core and collapsed, leaving behind only an incredibly dense mass of neutrons. And the key thing here is that um, when they start out as a, as a you know an honest-to-God star, these are huge, young, big, 
bucks of stars just really ravenously, you know, eating through their nuclear fuel. Uh, and then by the end of their life, there are these dying hulks, these little wrecks, uh, but not just any dying wreck. They're incredibly dense. So as they get smaller and smaller and spend off the last remaining little ounces of whatever's left, they collapse down and form a neutron star with nothing but neutrons and nothing to cook. And so there are these final coals of the fire of an earlier star. So these are the, the, the embers of two stars hanging out 130 million years ago in the galaxy. And what happened? These two coals find each other and orbit. And as they orbit each other, they slowly, slowly get closer and closer. And the reason they get closer itself is really cool. They get closer and closer because they're moving through something, space itself. And as they move through space, they send off ripples hmm. in that space. And those ripples we call gravitational waves. They spread out like waves in a pond if you throw a rock in. And as they spread out, they carry away energy, just like a wave in a pond carries away energy. And because that energy is going away, those two neutron stars fall closer and closer and closer together. So as those two get closer and closer and start revolving around each other faster and faster, with every revolution, they start pushing off, sending off more waves, like someone putting their hand through a pond. And those waves spread out. And as they go faster and faster, so the two neutron stars go around each other faster and faster, the waves that they send out get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger until finally the two neutron stars collide. And what happens is one of the most spectacular events we know in the universe. A huge set of waves is launched out into space in every direction, and it will continue moving at the speed of light all the way across the cosmos. And nothing, nothing can stop the gravitational wave. Wow. So that collision happened 130 million years ago. The waves from it didn't reach Earth until August 17th, 2017. Wow. Now, the technology that even allowed that wave to be detected here on Earth is still brand new. Scientists only discovered the very first gravitational wave two years before, in 2015. Alan Adams picks up that story from the TED stage. Let me give you a sense of the timescale at work here. 1.3 billion years ago, Earth had just managed to evolve multicellular life. Since then, Earth has made and evolved corals, fish, plants, dinosaurs, people, and even the internet. And about 25 years ago, a particularly audacious set of people decided that it would be really neat to build a giant laser detector with which to search for the gravitational waves from things like colliding black holes. Now, most people thought they were nuts, um, but enough people realized that they were brilliant nuts, that the U.S. National Science Foundation decided to fund their crazy idea. So after decades of development, construction and imagination and breathtaking amount of hard work, they built their detector called LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. In early September of 2015, LIGO turned on for a final test run while they sorted out a few lingering details. And on September 14th of 2015, just days after the detector had gone live, the gravitational waves from those colliding black holes passed through the Earth. And they passed through you and me. And they passed through the detector. So, so it took 1.3 billion years for that wave from these two black holes uh, to reach us here on Earth. And, it, and what happened? Did it, did it do anything to Earth? Did it change anything? Well, very literally, every one of us, everyone who's listening right now, stretched just a little tiny bit in one direction and contracted just a little tiny bit in the other direction yeah. and did that back and forth a few times. But it was so small that nothing... Nothing on Earth, no instrument that we've ever built could possibly measure the effect it had on you. 
but obviously the the LIGO detectors, which I guess are like these like three mile long tubes in the middle of ones in Louisiana and ones in Washington State, right? Right. Th- those detectors did pick up on that uh, that teeny wave. Exactly. That teeny tiny motion told us a tremendous amount about the collision. It told us how many objects there were, two. It told us how heavy each of them was. It told us how much matter was totally destroyed and turned into the ripples in space and time that spread out and finally hit our detector. It told us how far away it was. Hmm. So presumably, now that we have this technology to detect gravitational waves, are we just experiencing them all the time? Like, presumably, these huge, massive events are happening you know, at least well, once a week, once a month in distant space billions of years ago? Yeah, presumably, yes. <laughs> so the the LIGO collaboration has been overwhelmed in dealing with the data that they have. Hmm. Part of what's so amazing about this whole story is no one expected to find anything. No huh. one expected to detect gravitational waves. And already in the years since, we've detected event after event and learned unbelievable things about the universe way more than I think anyone really expected. This is the bit that really brings me to tears. The binary neutron star event, where two binary neutron stars collided, not only could we learn how heavy they were, we also learned, independent of every other measurement that's ever been made about cosmology, we were able to measure the Hubble constant and put constraints on the acceleration of the universe. Wait a minute. You're talking about this idea that the universe is constantly expanding. Yeah, and you can test that by looking at the data from LIGO. You can test the rate of expansion and how it's evolved on cosmological scales by listening to the black holes. Because Hubble's theory was that the expansion was happening, but it was slowing down. But now we actually think that the expansion is happening, but it's speeding up. Exactly. And the reason we believe that for the past many years is because we've been able to establish through long effort and lots of detailed observation distances to galaxies and then measure the light coming from distant galaxies during the explosion of stars. Yeah. What's amazing to me about the neutron star event is that just by looking at that one event and the gravitational waves coming off of it, we've got almost as accurate a prediction of the rate of the acceleration of the universe. It's a truly astonishing thing. So through gravitational waves, we can absolutely confirm affirmatively that the universe is expanding at a faster and faster and faster pace every moment. I'm a scientist. I never say absolutely. But with that said, gravitational waves have now given us a completely independent measure of the acceleration of the universe, Hmm. telling us that the universe is expanding faster and faster. And it's an utterly, completely different measurement than we've ever used to make that prediction before. And it agrees beautifully. And in a few years, with just a little more data, I'm sure the gravitational wave evidence is going to be by far the strongest evidence for the rate of acceleration of the universe. When we come back, Alan explains how gravitational waves can not only teach us about past events in the universe, but even about the very first event, the Big Bang. On the show today, we're peering deeper into space. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from our sponsor, Capital One. Here's Ken Dodelin, VP of Conversational AI Products, on why they needed a diverse team to program Eno, the intelligent assistant, to understand human language. At Capital One, we have a very diverse set of customers. We want customers to be able to express themselves in any way that they want. And so as we thought about how to train Eno to understand customers, we knew we needed a team that had similarly diverse backgrounds and perspectives that they could bring to the process every day. To meet Eno, the Capital One assistant, go to CapitalOne.com slash Eno. Support also comes from ExxonMobil, the company that's working to bring affordable, scalable carbon capture to industries around the world. It's one of the few technologies that can help decarbonize industrial plants by capturing CO2 at its source. Experts agree that it will also play a critical role in reducing global carbon emissions. Find out more at energyfactor.com.
I'm Shankar Vedantam, host of NPR's Hidden Brain. Think deeply. Here to tell you about our summer series, U2.0. Ideas and advice about how you can respond to life's chaos. Just do it. Just check to my inbox. Just check. Just check. Just check to my phone real quick. With wisdom. Listen to Hidden Brain every week. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, we're peering deeper into space. And as physicist Alan Adams was saying just before the break, the detection of gravitational waves by LIGO is helping us observe the universe in an entirely new way. Here's Alan again on the TED stage. That's the lasting importance of LIGO. It's a way that lets us hear the universe and hear the invisible. And there's a lot out there that we can't see. The Big Bang. I would love to be able to explore the first few moments of the universe, but we'll never see them because the Big Bang itself is obscured by its own afterglow. With gravitational waves, we should be able to see all the way back to the beginning. Our challenge now is to be as audacious as possible. Thanks to LIGO, we know how to build exquisite detectors that can listen to the universe, to the rustle and the chirp of the cosmos. Our job is to dream up and build new observatories, a whole new generation of observatories, on the ground, in space. I mean, what could be more glorious than listening to the Big Bang itself? Wait, wait. Gravitational waves could show us the Big Bang? Oh, yes. That could happen? It could absolutely happen. The early universe started with a Big Bang. We've all heard this. Sure. And in that Big Bang, lots and lots of the elements were produced. Hydrogen and helium filling up the universe. And hot hydrogen glows and it absorbs light. So what that means is we'll never see the Big Bang itself because the universe was so hot that it was glowing like a candle. And as a result, we can't see past it. We can't see through it. Hmm. So the universe is opaque to us from 100,000 years back to the beginning. Hmm. But gravitational waves go through everything. They go straight through the glowing hot gas of the early universe. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so what they let us do is see back way past that barrier in time and let us, in principle, touch back to the very earliest moments of everything around us. You know, Alan, some people hear gravitational waves and they're like, nah. You know, you know, what, like, what's a big deal? Because it's it doesn't feel real to all of us, right? So, I mean, what does this even tell us about where where we come from or or where we're going? Oh my God! It tells you all of the most important things in the world. So, to start, it tells you where the universe is going. It's gonna expand and expand and expand and get really cold and lonely and big and empty. Ooh. Yeah, that's really horrible. <laughs> it also tells you that that's not gonna happen for an extraordinarily long time, so don't worry about it too much. That's, that's a good thing. It tells you that everything around you came from a Big Bang and then stars cooking up lots of stuff like carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and all the things that make up the food you eat except for all the metals and the trace stuff, which came from the collision of two neutron stars, which is completely insane. Because think about this. Where you came from is not Iowa. Where you came from is a star exploding, creating all sorts of elements, having them collapse back into another star. Then it explodes, and it creates more elements, and they fall into another star. But this one turned into a neutron star, turned into a big lump of nothing but neutrons, collided with another one, and shot out a huge set of waves. And that is absolutely staggeringly cool. How can we ask, why is this important? What else could possibly be more important than understanding where we come from? Yeah. You're really intense. You. <laughs> I, I get it, though. I'm, I'm pretty blown away, too. Good. It is freaking amazing. That's theoretical physicist Alan Adams. You can find his full talk at TED.com. Hey, by the way, do you think any gravitational waves passed through us during, during the interview? An uncountable infinity of gravitational waves have passed through our bodies as huh. we've carried on oh this interview. Gosh. Every time you wave your hand, you're creating gravitational waves. Oh. They're insignificantly tiny, but they're there. In the same way that there are always ripples on the surface of the ocean. The ocean is never still. The universe is never quiet.
Well, I always loved the stars. I remember clearly when I was about 10 years old for the first time, I went camping. This is astrophysicist Sarah Seeger. And one, for whatever reason, in the middle of the night, I stepped out of the tent and I looked up and wow. I saw so many stars, it just took my breath away. And all I could think about was, wow, like, what is this? You know, what's out there? And I also thought, like, why didn't anyone ever tell me about this, you know? I think for most people, maybe it's not a big deal or really relevant, but I just was so shocked. It was like seeing a beautiful piece of artwork or hearing music for the first time. Like, I just never knew it was out there. Sarah's now one of the leading astrophysicists in the world. And she has one main goal in mind. My life's obsession for planets is to find another planet like Earth, one with water and continents and with signs of life in the atmosphere. Which could be possible one day. Because just in the past 10 years, scientists like Sarah have made incredible discoveries about planets outside our solar system. And up until relatively recently, we only knew of the existence of a small handful of these exoplanets. But today, scientists like Sarah Seeger have identified thousands. So, so help me understand this. We are on planet Earth, the pale blue dot, in a, let's, let's just call our solar system our, a neighborhood, like our, our block in our galaxy. Then, like, what's beyond there? What do we know about what's beyond that? Right. Well, just to build our solar system would be like a very, very busy neighborhood block. In addition to the planets, we have the asteroid belt. And even beyond our last eighth planet, we have the Kuiper belt, which Pluto's a part of. But beyond that, uh, there's not really a whole lot, actually. It's trillions of miles to the nearest star. So it's quite empty, actually. Um, Stars are really quite spread out in our, our block of the galaxy. But what's amazing is that our galaxy is filled with hundreds of billions of stars, many of them like our own sun. Hundreds of billions of suns in our own galaxy. It's amazing, yes. There are hundreds of billions of solar systems in our own galaxy. I mean, that's what we're thinking because we have evidence that most stars have planets. And so, yes, we're thinking that each of those stars, each of those suns has many planets. So if our solar system has eight planets, right, we have to assume that there are at least maybe hundreds of billions of other planets in our galaxy. Billions and billions of planets, that's right. And that's just one galaxy in the universe of galaxies. Right, I mean, we think that our universe has billions and billions of galaxies. Hundreds of billions of galaxies. And Sarah thinks that on one of those billions of planets... In one of those billions of billions of galaxies, some form of life has to exist. It's just a matter of finding the right exoplanet. And as Sarah Seeger explained from the TED stage, we've already ruled out quite a few. Are we alone? Is there life out there? Who is out there? You know, this question has been around for thousands of years, since at least the time of the Greek philosophers, but I'm here to tell you just how close we're getting to finding out the answer to this question. It's the first time in human history that this really is within reach for us. And I have a couple of favorite exoplanets to tell you about. This one is Kepler-10b. It's a hot, hot planet. It orbits over 50 times closer to its star than our Earth does to our sun. And actually, it's so hot, We can't visit any of these planets, but if we could, we would melt long before we got there. We think the surface is hot enough to melt rock and has liquid lava lakes. Gliese 1214b. This planet, we know the mass and the size, and it has a fairly low density. It's somewhat warm. We actually don't know really anything about this planet, but one possibility is that it's a water world, like a scaled-up version of one of Jupiter's icy moons that might be 50% water by mass. And in this case, it would have a thick steam atmosphere, overlaying an ocean, not of liquid water, but of an exotic form of water, a superfluid, not quite a gas, not quite a liquid. And under that wouldn't be rock, but a form of high-pressure ice. So out of all these planets out there, and the variety is just simply astonishing, 
We mostly want to find the planets uh, that are Goldilocks planets, we call them. Not too big, not too small, not too hot, not too cold, but just right for life. So when, when you, I mean, in your sort of search for the, the perfect Earth-like planet, I mean, we've gotten pretty close, right? We are aware of several planets now that are in that Goldilocks zone, that are just the right distance from their star to be habitable, aren't we? Well, we're so close yet so far hmm. because really the planets are so different from what we might imagine. We actually don't know anything about them other than their size or their mass and their distance. Let's think about our Earth for a moment here. And people are worried about our Earth warming by adding parts per million of carbon dioxide, right? So on our planet, we talk about this thing called the Keeling curve and you know how we're adding greenhouse gases in tiny quantities. Imagine for a moment that a planet like our Earth doesn't have just parts per million more carbon dioxide, but has 100 times more or 1,000 times more carbon dioxide. Wow, I mean, that planet all of a sudden would be so hot. We can imagine planets that would be in the so-called habitable zone, but because of their atmosphere, which acts like a giant blanket, the planet might be literally suffocating at the surface and too hot for life. So we actually have a ways to go. We know that there are lots of planets in their star's habitable zones. That gives us confidence, but we still need a lot more information. But what would happen if if we did find another Earth? Like, wh- wh- what would that actually mean? <laughs> the funny thing is we're so fixated on just trying to find the planet. Believe it or not, we haven't given too much thought about, about what we what do we next. Do, yeah. So, Well, we would do a lot of things, probably. The first thing we would do, though, as scientists, we feel a heavy burden of proof. So the types of things that we spend a lot of time working on and debating is what is an Earth? You know, how will we find it? What is what is the observational evidence that we could shout out to the world? Yay, we found it finally. Hmm. But everyone would do lots of things. SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, will listen in on that planet and try to see if there's actually anything going on there in the radio. Any alien civilization trying to send us a signal. I think the people trying to send probes at fast speeds will accelerate their activities. So I think that finding an Earth would galvanize many, many different groups of people. Yeah. I mean, do you ever, are there ever moments where you're, where you get discouraged or are you just, is the idea of finding this so, is it such a motivator that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter if it, if it never happens? Okay, I'm convinced it will happen someday. There has to be a planet like Earth out there. There are untold numbers of sun-like stars, and it's really that Earth is just out there waiting to be found. I don't know if we'll find it soon. I don't know what the landscape is in politics and money and in technology development. So we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, it's going to happen. It's got to be out there somewhere. Sarah Seeger... She's an astrophysicist and professor at MIT. You can see her full talk at TED.com. You can also see some cool images of travel posters to exoplanets that Sarah showed in her talk at our Facebook page. must be really, really dark at night in the Australian desert. Oh, it's just phenomenal. I mean, no lights. You see the Milky Way stream up above the horizon, billions of stars casting this huge glow over the desertscape. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. This is Natasha Hurley-Walker. She's a radio astronomer. Yeah, that's right. So I'm an astrophysicist who uses radio telescopes and supercomputers to explore our universe. And radio telescopes, like the one Natasha works with, they're a lot different than optical telescopes. And if you just imagine an optical telescope for a second, you probably think of a tube with lenses and mirrors. And they're all designed to observe visible light waves coming from outer space. But radio telescopes are made up of multiple dishes or metal receivers. And these telescopes are designed to observe radio waves, which is why Natasha works in the desert outside Perth in Western Australia. Right, because we have a fantastically radio-quiet site up in the desert where there's a radio exclusion zone. There's only about 100 people in an area about the size of the Netherlands, so the quality of the reception we can get in terms of radio is phenomenal. 
Now, radio astronomers like Natasha work with radio telescopes because optical telescopes have some limitations. Natasha explains from the TED stage. If you were to go to a darker part of the sky, you might see the center of our Milky Way galaxy spread out before you, hundreds and billions of stars. Just with our own eyes, we can explore a little corner of the universe. It's possible to do better. You can use wonderful telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, astronomers have put together this image. It's called the Hubble Deep Field. And in this image, you can see thousands of galaxies. And we know that there must be hundreds of millions, billions of galaxies in the entire universe. So you think, OK, well, I can continue this journey. This is easy. I can just use a very powerful telescope and just look at the sky. No problem. It's actually we're really missing out if we just do that. Now, that's because everything I've talked about so far is just using the visible spectrum, just the thing that your eyes can see. And that's a tiny slice, a tiny, tiny slice of what the universe has to offer us. Now, say you're standing on a corner, an ambulance approaches, has a high-pitched siren. The siren appeared to change in pitch as it moved towards and away from you. The sound waves, as the ambulance approached, were compressed, and they changed higher in pitch. As the ambulance receded, the sound waves were stretched, and they sounded lower in pitch. The same thing happens with light. Objects moving towards us, their light waves are compressed, and they appear bluer. Objects moving away from us, their light waves are stretched, and they appear redder. So we call these effects blue shift and red shift. Our universe is expanding, so everything is moving away from everything else. And that means everything appears to be red. Now, eventually, we get so far away, everything is shifted into the infrared, and we can't see anything at all. So is it at that point where we need radio telescopes to look even further beyond what an optical telescope can see? Yeah, so if you just look at optical telescopes, you basically, the universe kind of thins out. It gets red and then kind of vanishes. So we build infrared space telescopes. Now that's more difficult because the universe has a lot of infrared stuff in it. So all the gas in our galaxy, all of the um, exploding stars, they produce a lot of infrared as well. So there's a lot of contamination in that signal. The nice thing about radio is it does just punch through. So... So how has the technology of these telescopes changed or, or improved in the past few years? So some of the technology has changed, but for the low-frequency radio astronomy, we were doing that back in the 50s and 60s. The very first person to build a radio telescope was uh, Grote Reber. Uh, he just went, okay, I've heard about people picking up radio from the, the stars. I'm going to build an imaging telescope and I'm going to make a map of the Milky Way. And he just did it in his backyard in his spare time. Um, and that, that map is still accurate. It's, it's still dead on today. What has changed is the computing. So originally, we could only build radio telescopes with one or two elements. But nowadays, we have incredible supercomputers. So we can put down many telescopes in all different locations and then knit the signals together. So my telescope, for instance, has 128 different elements and it knits them all together seamlessly to produce these incredible images of the sky. So it's, it's really about the computing. Um, that's what makes that possible. In just a minute, the amazing things Natasha and her team discovered by using those radio telescopes and supercomputers. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone, a quick thanks to our sponsor, Mitsubishi Motors. For Director of Product Planning, Nate Berg and his team, it was important to ensure that the Outlander PHEV was spacious enough for all your driving needs and even a family road trip. One of the big tests our engineers actually do is luggage testing. So, you know, we make sure like a family of four or five can fit all of their luggage in the vehicle, you know, for that family trip. You know, making sure all of those things are simple, easy and convenient for customers to do. To learn more, go to MitsubishiCars.com.
what do all of these people have in common? Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, and Bernie Sanders. They're all running for president. And they've all sat down with us on the NPR Politics Podcast. Oh, NPR is going to drive me completely crazy. We are going out on the trail with as many of the Democratic presidential candidates as we can and are bringing you in-depth interviews with them. Come along by subscribing to the NPR Politics Podcast. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, peering deeper into space. And before the break, we were talking with Natasha Hurley-Walker. She's been doing research using a new radio telescope in the desert of Western Australia. And from the TED stage, Natasha showed off some of the results of her observations. I have spent the last five years working with very difficult, very interesting data that no one had really looked at before. So I'm delighted to share with you some images from this survey. The colors in this image tell us about the physical processes going on in the universe. So for instance, this is a local radio galaxy, Centaurus A. If we zoom in on this, we can see that there are two huge plumes going out into space. And if you look right in the center between those two plumes, you'll see a galaxy just like our own. But if we looked in the visible, we wouldn't even know they were there. And they're thousands of times larger than the host galaxy. What's going on? What's producing these jets? At the center of every galaxy that we know about is a supermassive black hole. Now, black holes are invisible. Um, all you can see is the deflection of the light around them. And occasionally, when a star or a cloud of gas comes into their orbit, it is ripped apart by tidal forces, forming what we call an accretion disk. The accretion disk glows brightly in the X-rays, and huge magnetic fields can launch the material into space. So these jets are visible in the radio, and this is what we pick up in our survey. Well, very well, so we've seen one radio galaxy, but if you just look at the top of that image, you'll see another radio galaxy. It's a little bit smaller, and that's just because it's further away. Okay, two radio galaxies. Well, what about all the other dots? Presumably those are just stars. They're not. They're all radio galaxies. Every single one of the dots in this image is a distant galaxy, millions to billions of light years away, with a supermassive black hole at its center, pushing material into space at nearly the speed of light. It is mind-blowing. And this survey is even larger than what I've shown here. If we zoom out to the full extent of the survey, you can see I found 300,000 of these radio galaxies. So it's truly an epic journey. We've discovered all of these galaxies right back to the very first supermassive black holes. Is there a limit? I mean, is there a fixed point where, where we just won't be able to observe beyond that point? Uh, essentially, yes. We will never be able to observe outside our own light horizon. So if you think back that the universe is 13.67 billion years old, if you look 13.67 billion light years away, you see back in time and you're looking at like nothing. So we can't see outside this bubble that's about 13.7 billion light years in radius. But we don't know that that is the size of the universe. Uh, so while I was in Cambridge, um, there's the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics, which is where Stephen Hawking works. And uh, I, I go to all the seminars. I went to one which was called um, Observable Limits of the Universe. And uh, it was almost comprehensible, at least for about five slides. Uh, and then I got lost. There was a lot of math. Anyway, the authors concluded that the universe is at least... 30 times larger than what we can see in our light horizon. So if you imagine we're looking in a sphere, um, the volume of that sphere, 13.7 billion light years cubed um, times four thirds pi, uh, times that by 30, that is the minimum size of the universe. But they didn't rule out the universe being infinitely sized, which is really hard to get your head around. I mean, it's it's incredible that the scope of our understanding and knowledge of the cosmos has expanded in such a way that we probably know and have learned more in the past five years than than we learned in the previous 
25 years, right? Absolutely. And, and presumably there's going to be more and bigger things coming, coming at us in the near future. I think what's really become clear over the last decade is that the questions we're now asking uh, require hundreds of scientists, thousands of scientists working really in uh, coordination and collaboration uh, on, on really enormous projects. But even amongst all that, all these huge mega projects, there's still like little teams just coming up with really clever ideas and putting some stuff in the field. So uh, I guess one example, like our telescope started out as a real kind of just some cowboys in the desert type thing. So originally the Murchison Widefield Array was just a few dipoles and we just were, you know, taking measurements. And then we built two elements and then we built four elements, then we built eight elements. And so we're sort of slowly building up this idea of of how to build a really great radio telescope. Um, So there's these huge mega projects, but there's also still little groups just doing cool things. So yeah, I just think it's a fantastic time to be in science. It's, It's really exciting. Natasha Hurley-Walker, she's an astronomer working at the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research at Curtin University in Perth, Australia. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, peering deeper into space. And we want to find out more about black holes, like the ones Natasha was just describing in her TED Talk. Yes. And I just have to be honest, I'm not sure that there are that many things that are as cool as a black hole. I'm just saying. This is Jedida Eisler. She's an astrophysicist who studies black holes. Yeah, it's amazing. Which Jedida says are one of the most mysterious forces in the entire universe. For certain. So we all have some idea of what a black hole is, right? These massive things that are formed by the death of a star and then they suck everything in, even light. But it turns out it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, it's one of those things that is both ubiquitous and also still widely misunderstood. So they are something that's so massive that there's just nothing has enough energy to get out, not even light itself. That's what makes them unique is that they're, they're a thing in the universe that doesn't shine. It doesn't give off any light at all, period. And that's why we call them black. And is it like a giant drain pipe? No, they're they're not just like sucking up everything all the way around indiscriminately. They're not vacuums in space. Oh, I mean, I still am imagining this incredibly powerful magnet type vacuum that's just Mm -hmm. drawing everything around it for, you know, vast distances, just drawing it in. The easiest way that I can think of is to think about the fact that these black holes, they are spinning. And basically everything in space is spinning. And so there is energy that's associated with that spin that keeps things from falling in. It's like you're sitting on a record spinning around. And as long as that record is going, then you're going to stay where you are. So there's a galaxy 55 million light years away. It's called M87. And at its heart, there's a black hole the mass of six and a half billion suns. I'm just, I'm like legit over here cheesing. This black hole is so far away, you would think it's impossible to see what it looks like. It's like seeing an orange on the surface of the moon. But this past year, We actually did. In April 2019, we saw the very first image ever of a black hole. Oh my God, like I was so excited. Um, It felt like I had been given a gift, like the universe had given me a gift. It was really, really amazing to see something so remarkable happen. More than 200 scientists and researchers, 60 institutes, and 20 countries came together to capture the image, which you might remember was on the front page of almost every newspaper. Shepard Dolman, the project director of this massive team, was speaking on the TED stage just days after the image was released. Until last week, we had no idea what a black hole really looked like. We used telescopes all around the world. We synchronized them perfectly with atomic clocks. So they received the light waves from this black hole, and then we stitched all of that data together to make an image. We had to get lucky in a lot of different ways. Light had to come from the black hole. It had to come through intergalactic space, 
through the Earth's atmosphere, where water vapor can absorb it, and everything worked out perfectly. The size of the Earth at that wavelength of light, one millimeter wavelength, was just right to resolve that black hole 55 million light years away. The universe was kind of telling us what to do. So,、um, Judaya, you were there. You were at the at the TED、mm-hmm. conference, listening to this in the audience.、Um, can you just explain a bit a bit more about what made what made it possible to capture this image? Like, what were the the breakthroughs that allowed us to actually see this thing? So there are a lot of breakthroughs that made it possible to get this image, and and I don't want to give that short shrift at all, right? Because there were technological breakthroughs. That is to say, in terms of just the image processing and the algorithms used to create simulations for which the actual image was compared,、uh, there were. Equipment breakthroughs in the sense that the sheer number of telescopes that were used—I think it was something like eight telescopes.、Right. Um, those telescopes had never been stitched together in the way that they were in order to get this result.、Uh, being able to have these telescopes communicate with one another, there were many, 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 many layers of innovation that were brought to bear for this to happen. Which is part of the reason why it's so exciting, right? Is that yeah. The science result is amazing, but to think of all of the infrastructure、um, and collaboration across the world, literally across the world, that had to happen to make this work is really remarkable. Just, I guess, because obviously we're on the radio, and it would just sound so much better coming from your voice than mine. Can you kind of describe what this image looks like? Yes. Let's see. Okay, so it looks like joy, but I'm not sure if that's going to translate well. So I will try to give you something else.、Um, so it's a black image with, in the center, sort of an orangey, hazy. It kind of looks a little bit like the colors of a sunset.、Mm. Um, and so you've got a circle with an absence of light. In the middle, so it looks more dark or black again. But the ring of light that you see doesn't look completely symmetric. That is to say, the same all the way around. We have measured more light on the lower half than on the top half. But yeah, it ultimately looks like a ring of light that is uneven around the circle, with the absence of light in the center. So what's happening is that the black hole is spinning. And you wind up with some of the gas moving towards us below, and receding from us on the top. And just as the train whistle is a higher pitch when it's coming towards you, there's more energy from the gas coming towards us than going away from us. But when you get enough light from all this hot gas swirling around the black hole, then you wind up seeing the definition of this ring begin to come into shape. And that's what Einstein predicted over 100 years ago. Einstein came up with this geometric. Theory of gravity, which deforms space-time, so matter deforms space-time, and then space-time tells matter in turn how to move around it. So you're seeing Einstein's geometry laid bare.、Uh, the puncture in space-time is so deep that there's a point at which light orbits the black hole. I know that we say it a lot, but to keep in mind that this theory that Einstein came up with. Over a hundred years ago, now still holds with our most、uh, precise measurements of a black hole ever, using literally the whole world as a telescope, and we we find that he's still right, right? So、mm. we shouldn't overlook how incredibly powerful that result is. I'm curious, like, how does this imagery of black holes? How does it affect and change the research? You know, that's happening. Around black holes and around other incredible phenomenon in space. So now you can start looking at things like, well, what is the spin of black holes, which is almost impossible to measure any other way. You can start to say something about、um, space-time curvature, and、um, you can start to really dig into the details of general relativity now that you have this kind of detailed data. So hopefully, these images. Will allow us to put some constraints. They won't give us the final answer. There's still a lot of work to do, but、uh, it'll start to give us a sense of if these observations are consistent. So, 
you could have a suit, like a space suit, that would mm-hmm. protect you, because I know you would die. But let's say you could. You had this really <laughs> awesome space suit. There's air conditioned, and you have like a you know movies in there, and a popcorn machine. It was like it's like one of those first class seats, you know, right. like a transatlantic flight. Um, you know what would happen? Like, is it like Matthew McConaughey in the movie where like you can just pick which direction? Oh my happens? goodness! And it's just so funny because like Interstellar is legit. Like my favorite science movie. Oh really? <laughs> like I am a nerd, and like I like legit shed a tear. I was like, oh, but it's so beautiful. Even though you knew it was all BS. <laughs> it didn't matter. It didn't matter, it's, right? It's beautiful. It's so cool. All right, so let's say you can just go into it like interstellar style. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What 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 would happen? What would you see around you? So you know what happens to you as you're approaching a black hole is among some of the most uh, exotic physics out there because now you've got very strong gravity pulling on you. And, you know, when you're standing on the planet, right, wherever you're standing right now, there's slightly more pulling on you from the top of your head to your feet just because of the way that gravity works, right? Yeah. Um, That same effect is magnified in a galaxy-sized way. You would just be squashed. You, it would, it's sort of the other direction that like <laughs> your head's not going towards a black hole as fast as your feet. And oh. so you're sort of stretched out. Oh my God. But yeah, it would not be pleasant. But what if it could be pleasant? You had like snacks and you were safe from that. Mm. What, what, you're traveling in that black hole and what, like, does it stop? You know, this is the place where physics and philosophy have to break, right? Once you get inside, we're in the philosophy, and I'm just not credentialed to do that, guy. But if you could travel to a black hole, like, you'd go for it, right? Oh, in a minute. And then I'd, like, take out my iPhone, and I'd record the whole thing, and I'd be like, see, I told y'all. That's Jedida Eisler. She's a professor of physics and astronomy at Dartmouth College. She has two TED Talks. You can see them both, along with Shepard Dolman's talk, at TED.com. Our galaxy itself contains a hundred billion stars. It's a hundred thousand light years side to side. It bulges in the middle, 16,000 light years thick. But out by us, it's just 3,000 light years wide. We're 30,000 light years from galactic central point. We go round every 200 million years. And our galaxy is only one of millions of billions in this amazing and expanding universe. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Peering Deeper into Space, this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin and Benjamin Klempe. Our intern is Deba Motasham. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. You can also write us directly at tedradiohour at npr.org. And you can tweet us. It's at TED Radio Hour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.